it's episode 120 of the Masterclass, and I'm Cam. That that voice you just heard belongs to my friend Dave. Yes. What's up? Well, you know, kind of at the end of the chaos of summer. Uh, it is almost over, isn't it? Kind of the the things that it seems like everybody scatters for. Like cockroaches to a light. Has, has, is beginning to come to an end and things, people that I haven't seen in a while, including this podcast <laughs> and Cam, um, have kind of. We've resurfaced, yes. Resurfaced, so. I was hibernating all summer because, you know, I don't know if you can tell <laughs> based on the color of my skin, I hid as much as possible. I'm never whiter than I am in the summertime, but it's because my freckles, they steal all of the, all of the tan. My freckles get dark and it makes the rest of my skin just look even more <laughs> pasty than it already is. That and the air conditioning. Yeah. Truthfully. Yeah. Try to get out a little bit. Did you guys go on the boat at all? We did. Yep. Good. Yeah. Actually quite a bit. So. Good. Boating good. is, boating is wonderful. If, if you can. Uh, if you live in a place where you can enjoy it and you have the means or more importantly, a friend has the means, uh, yachting is fun. Boating, tubing. My grandpa had a sailboat growing up or w- while I was growing up and it was my weekly duty to clean it. But that also meant that I got lunch at the yacht club and I got to sail uh-huh. with him very, very regularly. And it was my goal. I don't know if I ever told you this. My, what I wanted to do the summer after I graduated high school, not work and make money to go to college was to take my grandpa's boat. Now, remember I grew up in Detroit, Mm -hmm. right on the water. And unlike here in Kansas, the water (laughs) in Michigan can get you to the ocean. You go. So Lake St. Clair is essentially, it's north of the Detroit River and south of Lake Huron. Mm-hmm. It's essentially the Detroit River found a big plain and just got real bloated and became a lake. Um, but you can take Lake St. Clair down the Detroit River to Lake Erie and then take Lake Erie to the St. Lawrence Seaway and take that all the way to the Atlantic. So you go That's all the awesome. way, all the way through uh, eastern Ontario and then all the way through Quebec and you come out in the Atlantic Ocean just north of Maine. So it was my goal to take my grandfather's 40, <laughs> 48 or 42 foot sailboat that was built for the Mediterranean. So it's seaworthy. Uh-huh. From the yacht club in St. Clair Shores, Michigan, through all of that, down the entire East Coast, and in like the, uh, there's a little uh, intercoastal seaway that's in between the mainland and a lot of the islands. And then take that all the way down to the Bahamas and then come all the way back. Wow. That's what I wanted to do with the summer, which is one amazing and two, the most like unrealistic <laughs> and selfish and totally ludicrous idea. I told my grandpa that and he looked at me, he goes, are you effing kidding me? Why am I going to hand you my multi hundred thousand dollars a sailboat <laughs> to let for you. you who's never sailed on the ocean. Yes. You're an accomplished small boat sailor. I sailed all four years in high school, but those boats were <laughs> 13 feet long and, you know, did not cost as much as my parents' house. Why, why would I ever give you this boat to go solo? No less. Yeah. How are you going to feed yourself? <laughs> who's going to steer the boat when you got to go take a dump? Hmm. 
like all of these things that I hadn't, I just, the, the grandness of the, the adventure captivated me and, and, you know, obviously it never happened. And, you know, since then my grandpa has passed away and the sailboat oh. has been sold to oh, no. someone who I will hold a grudge against just because <laughs> I was not in a position to own house, maintain, or actually use a sailboat. So they're really expensive. Anyways. Yes. So your wording reminds me of Ferris Bueller's day off where he says, it is so choice. If you have the means, I highly recommend picking <laughs> one up. <laughs> well, and much like Ferris Bueller, my name is Cameron. And ah, I do love me the Red Wings. Let my people go. Except my dad's not a, you know, my dad doesn't have a Porsche in a glass garage in the woods. My dad loved his minivan more than anything. <laughs> You know, it's I true. never made the Red Wings connection. Seriously? I'm, I, like, I'm truly, yeah, I'm David, embarrassed. I'm embarrassed I, uh, by I'm the embarrassed fact for that you. <laughs> I never made the whole uh, he Cameron. He wears it the whole I movie. <laughs> I know. Oh, man. I, I don't know. know if we can recover from this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Might as well oh, just well. call it right now. Yeah, that's it. We're done. Show's that's over. the end. No more masterclass. We're just going to close the doors and... <laughs> Maybe someone will find us later on. So how old were you when that movie came out? Oh, gosh. Like you uh, weren't named after. No, no. My Cameron is my mom's 1986. maiden name. I was born in 86. Okay. But Cameron is my mom's maiden name. Oh, that's So okay. the grandpa whose boat that I wanted to abscond with down the Atlantic coast, uh, his name was Dougal to Cameron. Gotcha. From Glasgow, Scotland. <laughs> Moved over here in the 50s. Wow. Was an engineer at Chrysler. Oh, that's cool. He has the patent for the first transmission in a minivan ever. That's Ooh. his work. So you enjoy that, you 1988 Chrysler Voyager or whatever the heck it was. <laughs> it's obviously no longer in use, but it was on his wall in the living room. It's pretty cool. Well, that was Lee Iacocca. Mm-hmm. And he had... Yeah, he's got a few pictures with him and Lee. So Lee Iacocca had the pony car... Which was the Mustang, uh-huh. Camaro. He did the minivan. That changed a lot of lives, that minivan. And then I think he went, then Chrysler acquired Jeep. I think mm-hmm. you could argue he's the forefather of the SUV as we know SUVs today. Not that there weren't other. My grandpa had a Grand Cherokee with when I was a kid, and he had the car phone in it. And I thought oh. it was the coolest thing ever. That's yeah, awesome. They used to whenever. So my grandpa would get new cars like every two or three years because through Chrysler, he had like a killer lease program. Like I would never recommend anyone ever lease a car. I think it's a terrible financial decision. But the deal that they were getting in the 90s when things were just I mean, this was before they all went bankrupt or almost <laughs> things were just I mean, they were handing money away. He would get a new car every two or three years and it would be top of the line leather seats because they got such a good employee deal on it. Um my grandma and my grandpa would invite me over when they got the new car and they would just sit me in there and they go, okay, figure out all the electronics. And I would sit in there and it was like a 10 year old and I would figure out what all the buttons did, what, you know, <laughs> how to set up the, the automatic garage door opener that was built into the visor, you know, the uh, CD changer in the back trunk, like that sort of crap. Yes. I think they knew how to do all of it. I just think they wanted to make me feel smart and special. <laughs> I did not expect to talk about this. This is I did not either. Very uh, nostalgic for me. 
I'm going to put a link in the show notes to the original Chrysler minivan. Well, it was, so I remember there was a Dodge Caravan. There was a Plymouth, Plymouth Voyager. Voyager. Yeah. The and Chrysler then, town and country. It was a town and country is, is what we, I would have guessed. We had a Plymouth, our first minivan. We used to, I remember we had a Dodge Omni when I was a kid. My wow. parents being the lovely, wonderful human beings they were left me in it alone one time in the driveway. I think my dad, <laughs> like I legit think my dad just forgot like a wallet or something in the house and ran in and I somehow managed to unlodge it from park and rolled down the driveway across <laughs> the street and up the neighbor's driveway. And by the grace of God alone, there was no cross traffic, no- but I'm also the same kid that stuck his finger on the bright orange cigarette lighter twice to figure out that bright orange means hot. Don't do mm. that. So it could have been totally my fault. Um, but yeah, I'll have a link in the show notes to the original Chrysler minivan and, uh, cause you know, that'll be fun. But yeah, I remember the Plymouth Voyager. We had a purple Plymouth Voyager and none of the windows were tinted, which is really weird in a minivan. If you ever see a minivan that doesn't have the back windows aren't tinted, mm-hmm. it's like a couch on wheels because <laughs> you can see everything and it's so unusual. And then later on, we got a Chrysler town and country and my dad, he would rather drive a minivan than any other vehicle on the planet, which I don't understand. I don't know that I would drive one other than any other. It would be his first choice. It would not be my first choice, but I I will just tell you this, that minivans make so much sense. (laughs) I mean, it's like expensive. You truly are just like, it is amazing the amount of room that you have in a minivan. Well, now with like the stone go seating and that sort of stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, we got rid of ours a couple of years ago thinking that our, Oldest daughter was in college. We didn't need the minivan anymore. That's when you need it, man. And then it was like, we literally was like, oh my gosh. In fact, just this past weekend, we went and picked up a couch Mm. and end tables and put them in the back of a minivan. Take the seats out and it's, Mm -hmm. it is unreal. I I got a washer and a dryer in a. I fit my entire dorm room in yeah. the back of a minivan. Now, don't get me wrong. That thing was loaded for war. Like if anyone rear-ended <laughs> us, they were going to lose. Um, but yeah, like couch, bunk bed, clothes, guitar amps, like the whole nine yards. It would not be my first choice, but I, I, I would have a hard time. I, the practicality of a minivan just far exceeds just about anything. So I think if my dad still could like justify the cost to my mother. He would still have one. Now, granted, he has a Honda Element, which is essentially a square minivan because <laughs> the back seats fold up into the windows on oh the sides. Gosh. So the, it, it essentially becomes two front seats and a giant. Yeah, it's a minivan. Just cube shape. So, hey, remember before the show when we were talking about that podcast we want to record where we just talk we about just random did. stuff? <laughs> this, this is the pilot episode. We're now going to return to the master class. But thanks for hanging in there, ladies and gentlemen. That show may or may not be coming uh, available in the future. We'll see. We need a name for it, too. So if you're still listening and haven't either deleted this episode or skipped ahead <laughs> to the actual conversation, we need a name for the show where me and Dave just talk about whatever the heck comes to the front of our brains. Cause we just had a lot of fun. I don't know if you did, <laughs> but we're going to give it a shot at some point in the future yeah, and, because and, there's so much stupidness and silliness that happens before we actually try and talk serious about, you know, Jesus that we thought, you know, we should give that a thought and, and unbeknownst to both of us, we just gave it a trial run without even really planning on it. So if you have a show name for that, Yes, let us know. Let us know uh, on Twitter. Dave is at David J. Hogue. I'm at Cam Brennan. You can email us hello at supermegacorp.net. 
and put in the subject line, best show title ever. And I will read it immediately. Uh, and we'll go from there. Yes. So I've given us a professional transition, David. Let's let us not waste it. All right. What are we talking about today? So we're looking at Romans four and verse 13. And really we're going to go all the way through to the end of Romans four, because this is really one kind of, um, continual thought. Um, don't know that we'll dissect it maybe a whole lot, uh, maybe a broader discussion, but yeah, that's where we're at. We're at the second half of Romans four and we'll probably finish that today. So if you would like, I can read that. Bring it. All right. So verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope that he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All right. Thank you, sir. Felt like I should have taken a deeper breath at the beginning of that. <laughs> Pull the Ace Ventura. <laughs> Loser. And the title of that is The Promised Realized Through Faith, which I don't know. As I scrolled back, it kind of stuck out to me. Hmm. All right. Now, where to begin? Mm-hmm. So. Verse 14 is, I think, well, 13 and 14 are, are pretty important to understand leading out of what we talked about last time and what that was all about and leading into where we're going. So what do you think it means? Or in verse 14, it says, for if it is the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Like he seems he makes a very distinct claim there. If this is true, then these are the results. And if these are the results, then why is it a big deal that Abraham's righteousness was credited to him as faith or by faith? So then then my initial thought is that there's this element of God has presented the law. The law certainly serves a purpose. Um, Namely it, it, it it points out to us um, what our sins are. And there's this, 
with Abraham and his story, um, this dependence on God. And when you look at it, when you look at the world religions, every other religion other than Christianity, um, and and I guess I would include Judaism in that, there's this idea of of I can do something to get to God. I can do something to earn heaven. I can do something to 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 earn uh, salvation. And you know, one of the things that's coming to my mind right now is the five pillars of Islam. I mean, these are very specific things that if I do this, I do this, I do this, then I will get to go to heaven. And so, you know, if I, if I have the giving of alms and I make the, the, uh, voyage to Mecca and, you know, if I do all the things that I'm supposed to do, I can earn my salvation. And so long before the law and long before Jesus coming and fulfilling the law, we got this guy, Abraham, who faith is the key kind of underlying word when it talks about him and his relationship with God. And I think ultimately what God is saying here is there's this, Abraham by faith believes God. Abraham is trusting on God. He is dependent on God. And Abraham knows that within his own power, his own ability, I mean, just even being able to have a kid at advanced life stage is really impossible for him to do. And so he has to have faith in God to make this happen. And so for me, this is kind of the beginning, the underlying theme of who God really is and how he interacts with history in terms of Believing God and taking him at his word and trusting on trusting in him and being dependent on him is essential to a relationship with him. And, um, you know, if the law could do what the law was supposed to do, then faith wouldn't be necessary. Can I rephrase that? Sure. I, I, I wish I, you would. No, well, I... <laughs> And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but when I hear that, I, what, I, what, I, what I think it should be is if the law could accomplish what we wanted it to accomplish. Like, I don't think God set the law out to be salvation, right? It says the law was... No. So, but what Judaism was at the time, the law was salvation, right? And that's why Jesus had to come and clear the temple out because they had taken it so far in the direction of you must do this, 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 and this to be right before God. And that is the only way that you can be right before God. Whereas the entire point, as far as I understand it of the law was to prove that you cannot get there. The law was to convict and that was it. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, the law was to convict, but, but, um, I don't know. There's, I think there's God's perspective and there's man's perspective. Well, and that's what I was trying to get at. And I think from man's perspective, it's like, well, if I meet all the elements of law, then I'm there. And God's like, no, you don't get it. You You can't meet all the requirements. And so that's, that's what I was getting at is that God implemented the law for one reason and man saw it for a different. And so that's what I was trying to get at. Anyways, because verse 15 says for the law brings wrath. Mm-hmm. 
but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And so God, that is so there's so much we can talk about there. Right. So, okay. So even in that verse right there, it's saying the whole purpose of law is to show what you've done wrong. Yes. That was what I was trying to say. And not just show what you've done wrong, but there, for there to be consequences for the wrong that has been committed for for what you have done. And And, that's where Jesus shows up. Right. Because again, Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law because without the law, I think Paul talks about this somewhere (laughs) without the law. I don't know what I've done wrong. I don't know what my transgressions are. Mm -hmm. And so I need the law to show me what my transgressions are. Yeah. But ultimately I can't do it. So yeah, it's so, man, my, so we're not going to get all the way through. We're not going to get all through this. No. (laughs) And even in this, my mind is completely blown because like you, I, I, I have to confess. I've never thought about this with much, well, I haven't thought about it at all. The fact that this whole conversation with Abraham is well before the law even comes into place. The law doesn't exist. It's, it's Noah, it's Abraham, it's, it's Adam. It's, it's the, it's this group of people that exist since creation that for one reason or another, choose to believe in a God and try to try to whatever they try to do. And this is what I wrote down verbatim while you were reading that was why did Abraham have faith? Nothing came before him like Christianity. How did he know? And how crazy is this? Given their physical situation that he was credited with having faith in something that there was no institution, there was no history, there was no scripture. It was just a guy who, for some reason, decided God exists. I can talk with him and have a relationship with him. Like this sounds like absolute crazy talk to people nowadays. Yeah. Cause even with the Genesis, I mean, and this was, um, not sure how the show will be edited, but as, as we launched into this, one of the things I started to do was look at Genesis 15. And if you take the Bible as a whole, I honestly couldn't tell you how many verses there are but I'm guessing there's thousands of verses if in the not, Bible, if not tens, tens of thousands, yeah. thousands. And we're literally talking 15 chapters in. Yeah. A couple hundred verses, a couple hundred verses where it talks about um, God's covenant with Abram. He hasn't even had his name changed. So, I mean like early, early, early on in the whole Bible story, is exactly what you're talking about. This idea of him being in relationship with God. And then even in that, for me, there's this element of that was kind of screwed up already in terms of the garden of Eden and God saying what I had designed and had intended had already fallen apart and they'd gotten kicked. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the, the garden of Eden. And so yet he still was, in relationship with God, he still had that interaction with him and faith with him. So, um, yeah. So just that, that timeline is very much a, yeah. And that's, that's what really hit me about it is because like, I mean, Abraham is such a well-known figure in the Bible. And when you really kind of put the, like what was available to him, as far as tradition, knowledge, uh, 
scripture, uh, other people that believe the same thing as him into perspective, you begin to realize like, there's a reason God picked him. He was not normal mm-hmm. there. There, there could easily have been other people that felt the same way as him for whatever reason God chose Abraham. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not like God waited until now when there are literally hundreds of millions, if not billions of Christians on the planet to go, okay, now I'm going to choose someone to make like, that would obviously be, a, you know, inconsistent because how can you be the father of a family if like you're like family member seven billion point two or that's not even a number i can't <laughs> seven billion point two. Oh man a googleplex yeah there we go everything that just anything good i said earlier just went out the window but i i i, I just have personally never thought of abraham that way before at, mm. at the like the practical ludicrousy of what he believed based on what. Mm-hmm. And it's as far as I can surmise, and this is a total guess, it's based on two things the physical world and his personal experience. And at for a large portion of human existence, those two things mattered. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Sure. If you read the Psalms, I mean, if you, if you look at a lot of, um, like the native Americans and now I'm, I'm starting to get out of my depth here, but a lot of what I have learned or read about them was their relationship with, with, you know, mother earth and, 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 you know, deity is, is based on the physical universe and being in tune with that and then personal experience. And nowadays that doesn't really matter as mm-hmm. much because they're not reliable. They're not consistent. They're not, you know, scientific or, or what have you, but there, to me, there's something there. It, it has become increasingly, uh, accepted that the physical is unreliable mm. that the physical universe was an accident that life was an accident mm. that order is an accident which is the, of all of those things order being an accident is the most ludicrous to me that's an absolute oxymoron yeah because you don't see that no you don't see now now things tr- tend toward entropy which is is, is chaos right it falls but apart yeah things fall apart but that that is from the christian mindset a a symptom of sin of things being broken of not being how they were intended to be but for there to be order at all which there is everywhere you look order cannot come from chaos order can descend into chaos but order cannot come from it yeah if if you study physics and you look at the law of physics mm-hmm. there is no law of physics that says Order comes from chaos. It is quite the opposite. Yeah. Order can quickly descend into it, you know, given a few variables, but it's, yeah. So relying on a, a, uh, oh, what's the phrase I want to use here? Relying on a open view of the physical universe, an honest assessment of what is there and what is not 
questioning why it is the way it is and coupling that with personal experience, Abraham, as far as I can tell, and I could be, again, I could be missing the boat here. So please, if I'm, if I'm missing something, if I'm wrong, let me know. But it seems to me that that is how he came to this decision, that God exists. And also God is interested in me. Mm-hmm. Which is, that's an even huge, huger, again, with the not English, is an even larger leap, right? Because what, what, uh, what precedent does he have for that? Other than knowing the story of Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. which would have been passed down, you know, as a story. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't know, man, it's crazy. So. The only thing I can come up with is in Genesis 12, it says, the Lord said to Abram, which is Abraham's name before God changes it. And that's, that is our very, I believe that is our very first introduction. So then we have three things, physical universe, personal experience, and God actually (laughs) intervening. Yeah. Which would be the most convincing. Sure. To be fair. But again, why, you know, sort of that, why did God intervene with him? Because, I mean, it's very quickly that, you know, verse four, Abram went as the Lord told him and Lot went, Abram was 75 years old. So clearly he's, he's lived, he's lived quite a life and they're going to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, um, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord uh, who had appeared to him. So, you know, if God appears to me, hopefully I'm somebody that builds an altar versus uh, writing it off as some hallucination. Shouldn't have had those mushrooms. Exactly. I had those the do not eat list. But the first thing that he does is they go into Egypt And he lies about who his wife is. I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. So here's a guy in relationship with God. And the first thing he does is tell his wife, hey, lie about who you are. Well, you know what that says? He knows dudes. And well, also Sarah in her seventies <laughs> is a total babe. Apparently, <laughs> I mean, maybe late sixties, maybe she's but, a little bit younger. But so. still, uh, David, exactly. no Botox, no makeup. Come on, and well, so maybe makeup. But I mean, he knows dudes. Yeah, I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying, like, and so what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh takes his takes um, her as his wife. And then the Lord afflicts Pharaoh with plagues because of her. (laughs) And then Pharaoh calls Abram and says, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Like, seriously, bro? Yeah. Yeah. So he's lucky he didn't get them all killed. He's lucky he didn't get them all killed. And I'm not. I'm not. Maybe I am. I don't want my intent to be to justify anything that I've ever done in my faith as being okay. And I should never compare myself to others. My standard is higher than that. Here is a guy that 
God is giving all kinds of credit to for being a man of faith, and he manipulates the situation to benefit him because he doesn't trust God. And it's not the only time and he does it. we haven't even gotten to the worst part yeah. yet, which Paul just glosses over. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Oh, man. And then verse 15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And that to me is something that I think the church in America needs to understand in so many ways. So I'm going to turn the tables here big time, I think, Um, just because the second I heard this, the first thing that came to my mind was homosexual marriage in America. Mm -hmm. If they're not Christians, why would we hold them to Christian standards? Yeah. Like, um, I'm not a vegetarian and you are, and you judge me based on vegetarian standards for eating meat. Well, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not a vegetarian. I'm not restricted by the things that you are. Mm -hmm. I like meat. It's yummy. I have it at every meal. And I, what I don't understand is why Christians in general, and again, you know, my statement on general on, you know, my statement on general statements, Dave, what is wrong with my brain tonight? You're fine. I understand the weakness of general statements. So if this general statement doesn't apply to you, I don't intend it to. Man, I'm all flustered now. Like, why is it? that Christians are so eager to judge non-Christians by Christian standards. It makes quite literally zero sense. And so for a verse like this to say, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Uh, duh. But it is so easy for us. And I'm going to throw myself in the boat here to judge other people that do not believe the same things we believe by our own beliefs and therefore make ourselves look and or feel better in judgment on those people. And it's ludicrous. And this is not just for, uh, for, you know, the, the issue of homosexuality or what it's, it's for anything that you feel like your Christianity makes you better than someone for when they are not living or held to the same standards that we are because they are not believers. It doesn't mean that the actions are necessarily correct, but if there's no law or in our, you know, circumstance, grace and mercy to hold them to something, why on earth would we expect there to be? Mm-hmm. Like, am I making any sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I just, I don't get it. Yeah. Well, and, and I think. First Corinthians five twelve, yes. maybe even verse thirteen. Yes, 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 yes. Supports what you're saying. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Mm-hmm. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And then in quotes it says, "Purge the evil person from among you." Um. And so, and I think even in that, um. 
why is there such this obsession of if somebody is in a homosexual lifestyle and should they come to know Christ, why is the first thing we feel like we have to do is to like convince them that they have to like put that away? Like, because not- that's the worst <laughs> sin, David. So, and. Oh man, I have so much on this. Oh, continue. So, so the, the, the thing that for me personally is, is when I was young and I was a new Christian, um, and I can't believe I'm going to say this out loud, but it is true because it's where I was. I, there were times where I was like, I didn't think I sinned. Like I literally was just like, Oh, I don't sin. Like I don't do this. I don't do that. You you know, you know, and the farther along I go in my Christian journey and, and the deeper I get in my faith with, I feel like I need more grace than when I was like, and again, it's, it's, this, I, I just realized I am a sinner. Well, it's, you, it's not these individuals. A better understanding of who God is and who you are. And, how and, and the, raved I really, <laughs> the difference between those two. I, I, I do not think you're alone in the feeling of when you are a, you know, to use a, a Christian Easter term, a young Christian mm-hmm. or just someone new, new, to the faith, new to the faith. Yeah. To go, you know, like Jesus is great. God is great. I think I'm kind of great too. Once you get get past like whatever the initial, whatever the initial impulse is to go, oh my gosh, I am a sinner. I need God. Like everyone has to come to the point where they feel like they need to be saved. Otherwise no one would ever become a Christian. But then after a while you get into that, like, oh man, I go to church. I read my Bible. Like, man, I sing those worship songs with some gusto. I might even play in the band. (laughs) <laughs> I go to small group. You kind of, you kind of get that self-inflated. It, it, it might be, I, I would love to talk to some folks that came to faith later in their life and had already kind of been humbled by the world. Yeah. I think our situation is much more common in, in folks like us that came to faith early mm-hmm. and had that young hubris of just being a young person who, you know, the world is my oyster. I'm invincible. God is good, but I'm kind of good too. I think that's pretty normal, um, at least as, as I said there in that scenario. But it, it again, that the quote from Tim Keller that I think I bring up like every like five or six episodes, <laughs> like. And again, I'm going to paraphrase because I can never I need to memorize this quote. Along the lines of. You know, you'll never. How does he say it? God. Yeah. God's. Grace is more than we could ever imagine. And our depravity is greater than we would ever care to admit. So like the, the more we come to know God, the more that we come to be with him in relationship, the difference between us becomes more and more and more and more apparent. And the farther away we get from the, you're great, I'm great. And we get to the, holy cow, I've done these things, Mm -hmm. yet you still love me. Holy cow, I've thought these things. You sent your son to die for me. Like, holy cow, I have, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And yet I still, you still want me. Mm-hmm. And that is the beauty of, of God and the gospel and his creation is that like, it does not matter. The deeper you go, the more he is there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just. 
You got me all distracted, Dave. <laughs> In a good way. I guess. Man, I really had this whole thing I wanted to talk about, and now I can't remember it because I'm all distracted by, like, you know, God being graceful and merciful and, you know, taking care of his people. Mm-hmm. What a jerk. <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm reminded of when Jesus calls Peter to come follow him, and in, in specifically in Luke 5, uh, Jesus tells them to... Um, put their nets out again. And Simon, who Jesus changes to Peter says, master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And so they let down the nets and there's this large catch of fish so large that they have to kind of, um, call the other boat over and they spill boat. They fill up both boats with the catch they've had. And in Luke five, eight, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus knees saying, depart from me. From I am a sinful man, O Lord. Uh, for he knew all who were with him were astonished at the catch and the fish they had taken. And so, you know, from a worldly standpoint, you know, Peter's saying that, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So many of us, if we were Jesus, which is absurd, but if we were <laughs> Jesus, there'd be an element of, okay, yeah, you're right. I'll move on to the next guy. But for, for Peter, depart from me, O Lord, I am a sinful man. That was a moment where Jesus actually says, nope, you're the guy I want. And not only are you the guy I want, but you are going to be the, in the inner circle of the guys that I want. And you are going to be one of my best friends. And, um, hey, a few years from now, I'm going to call you the rock that I'm building the church upon. He's going to star in so many action movies, <laughs> you know, and, and one, it's difficult for me to acknowledge that I'm that sinful. And so, so that's probably one of the places I need to start from is, is, is depart from me from my, I'm a sinful man. Oh Lord. And then even in that, allow him to forgive me and then work in my life and allow me to come alongside him. And as Christians, kind of back to our, our point in our discussion is, we kind of have this idea of, oh, we got to get rid of all the sin first. We got we to gotta, yeah. get cleaned up so we can get into the shower to get clean. We got <laughs> we to, gotta, you know, don't want to get the shower dirty. Before I get in there, I got to wash myself, and then I can get in the shower yeah. and take my actual Ritualistic shower. purification, yeah. That is so how we treat Christianity. And, and I truly, it's one of those things where my experience has been when somebody who lives in a homosexual life style, and I'm not saying I've, I've experienced this broadly or on many occasions, but I have been at least a, a distant observe, observer of somebody who has come to the church from the homosexual lifestyle. It seems to me that there's this instant, we need to fix you. And we need to get rid of the homosexuality. Whereas if he was just a stereotypical heterosexual guy. Yeah. But well, Peter. Right. We who, wouldn't, who, we who, wouldn't who, have that like, oh, we need to solve you of whatever ails you. It would just be like, oh, welcome to the church. Hey, come to the church picnic. You want to join a small group? Hey, mm -hmm. do you play guitar? We could use a guitar player. 
Mm-hmm. But if you come in with the label of homosexual, all of a sudden, yeah, we need to we need to save you from that sin immediately before you can even serve or mm-hmm. you can even like take the church 101 like, hey, this is what it means to be a Christian class. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I get th- I get what you're saying now. Okay. So now I'm not saying that. <laughs> and this is where I may sound like a hypocrite or whatever, but. Because we we all have this sort of um, ingrained sin in our life, rooted sin in our life that we constantly battle. I, I do believe that we all have those things that while we are forgiven of them by him, it's never completely removed from us. I think we all have that thing, that sin in our life that Which, will be yeah, different for each person. And it is different for each person. Um, I, and we've had this conversation before of, um, I think I have to be honest to that person and say, I don't think you can live in this lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Now I'm not, I'm not going to tell that person to, to leave that lifestyle, but I, I do think there's an element of God has to convict you and you have to do what God is telling you to do. But if you ask me, I'm going to give you my genuine, um, and maybe even in that, it depends on how close our relationship is as to how. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to talk to a stranger and be like, no. um, listen, here's how you need to live your life. Yeah. But. But the, that's, but that's given true your position, any sin. But given your position as an elder at your church, mm-hmm. if there is uh, not even a young man, just a man that you are familiar with, that you um, have seen you know, at the church, mm-hmm. uh, participating, being an active member of that community who is still actively either, you know, in a, you know, a monogamous loving heter- or homosexual relationship or just like whatever other circumstances there may be and is convinced that he can both be a Bible believing God fearing, you know, going to, going to be with Jesus Christian and also engaging in, in a homosexual relationship. And you have a relationship with this guy as far as like, like Mm -hmm. that's a conversation you need to have. Yes. And you would feel comfortable assuming he's not a stranger. Like, would you feel it was your, I would not feel comfortable. No, but would, would you, I feel, uh, and I even hate using this word, but I think it's, I do believe it's, would I feel righteous in my conversation? Yes. And not, do I feel righteous, but in God's righteousness, do I feel it's appropriate? Yeah. Well, and we've said this on the show multiple times before, like it would be so much easier if I, it was totally okay. I agree. It would just solve so many problems. Yep. Man, how do we wind up here? On this episode, <laughs> this is like 100% my fault. The verse 15 just triggered me, man. Yeah. Well, it just and, triggered me. And again, I think it's that element of, and this was something that I just, it, 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 I, this conversation to me, I can, I can genuinely say this conversation happens regularly for me mm-hmm. in terms of we are all sinners and we are all in need of grace and we are all in need of forgiveness and that 
we are just, we are sinful. That's just, that's who we are and that's where we live versus these are my individual sins. And I feel like I need to get rid of all these individual sin. Like I just need to get rid of this and I'll be right with God. And if I just get rid of this, I'll be right with God. And we've, we've talked about Dallas Willard and the yeah. gospel of sin, sin management. Yeah. Cause that's not what we're talking about here because mm-hmm. again, it's not that we don't strive for these things, but I, and even as I say this, it almost sounds a little bit discouraging because you conquer this sin and you get this off the table. There's going to be a new one to take on. Well, and I guess, I guess the hypocrisy I see with the homosexuality thing in the church is like, we would never allow an openly homosexual man or woman to be a pastor of a church and teach the Bible. But our pastor drinks too much. Our pastor looks at porn. Our pastor lies on his taxes. Or how about just the fact that our, our pastor is a freaking sinner. Like yeah. that's what I mean. That's where I'm trying to get to is like, it does not matter. Like we try and whitewash it. As Jesus says, whitewash the tombs mm-hmm. on the outside to make them look pretty. Like it does not matter what person you put in that pulpit outside mm-hmm. of Jesus. Anyone who teaches is a sinner. Mm-hmm. They are actively sinning yep. to some degree or another. And for whatever reason, like I get it. I agree that homosexuality is a sin. But guess what? It's not any worse than any other ones. No. And if you're banging someone that isn't your wife, guess what? You fit in like, I, I don't, I, if you divorce and you get remarried, you commit adultery. Like we, I, I don't understand. I don't understand why it's become this like, oh, well, you're a worse kind of sinner. Yeah. I don't get it. Yeah. I don't get it. Well, and divorce is one of those ones that, oh, for that me, we just don't even worry about anymore. No. And it drives me crazy. Yeah. And like, there's a million and a half reasons why couples get divorced. But as we said earlier and this, and this, this is what I was going to say earlier. When we talk about crap, I just forgot. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I kind of did. I'm just telling. Hold on. <laughs> Okay. I, I, I kind of forgot, but I'm back. I'm, I got it now. Church discipline. We talked earlier about we, we judge inside the church and not outside. Mm-hmm. What do we see the church do 95% of the time? Judge everyone outside of the church and not inside of the church. How, how often have you had church discipline discussions? Either on the elder board in a small group how often do you see the church discipline members of the church versus how often you see Christians judging people that do not adhere to the same beliefs? Uh, so I, one of the things I will say is, is I, I feel like in terms of the discussions that we have, we're actually pretty good at that. Okay. We're, we're pretty good at saying, this is, this is somebody we need to hold accountable Mm -hmm. and this is why now in the broader scope of me and my faith and the conversations that I have, that's a small percentage. Yeah. And that's the only thing I can speak to is Mm -hmm. me and my, but when it comes to church business, there is an element of, I don't feel like we do a lot of that, but in my personal and my friendships, yeah, I'm guilty of. Well, in my experience when I worked, when I worked, 
as a youth pastor was that church discipline was marginal at best. It was not something that our church engaged in. But I also don't feel like our church is out there, you know, on the picketing and stuff. But, but even growing up when I wasn't working for the church, like the concept, I didn't understand the concept of church discipline until I was reading books on the church Mm -hmm. as an adult. It was never something that I was aware of. Now it could have been because I was a kid and I was protected from, you know, a lot of that stuff. But like the whole reason the church I went to growing up exploded was because there was none, not for the staff, not for the people at the church. And it just exploded. and It was nasty and disgusting. And it was just the worst of the worst mm-hmm. when it comes to church stuff. And so I'm a little touchy yeah. here um, to the point where I think like we need to yeah. get back to that. But it's so countercultural now for the church to be telling you what you're doing is wrong. Right. And I'm kind of okay with that. Like I, there's been this saying going on in my head. Like if I, if I were ever to work at a church again, which I want to do. And if I were ever to lead a church again, which I think later on in life would be something that I would like to do once I just, I just, I'm not ready. I'm not there. Um, is I want everyone to be welcome in my church. Absolutely. But I don't want anyone to be comfortable. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Probably not a perfect saying, but I think that if everyone is welcome and no one feels completely comfortable, then it means that everybody is paying attention Mm -hmm. and everybody is engaging and everybody is trying to figure out what God is wanting them to change in their life. Right. Because the second you become comfortable is the second Satan goes, let's let's bring in the recliner. I'm good. And that's when complacency kicks in and that's when you get all sorts of BS you don't need in your life. Well, and that's, you know, the, so one of the ones that I, I feel like doesn't get addressed enough is, is materialism. And I'm Dave, 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 we don't talk about <laughs> it. We live in the suburbs. Yeah, Come on, exactly. Man. And I'm, and I'm probably guilty of that. And dude, we have in-ear monitors. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> And then, so, so, so the materialism is the one thing and then, but the, but I, it, it seems like it's few and far between that, that a church leader is kind of scrutinized, uh, evaluated, really looked at who they are for their materialism. But boy, if there's a hint of any kind of sexual wrong, then that just absolutely. And I, I'm thinking a very specific of, of. I, and I'll just mention this because it's, it's in the public deal is what Bill Hybels has been dealing with at um, Willow Creek in mm-hmm. Chicago in that, and to be honest with you, as somebody who does, who has worked in the church and is now outside the church and is now in a very dark career, mm-hmm. the things that, that they are saying that he did, I like, I want to laugh. Like, I, I'm just, I am literally like, really, that's the best you got on this guy. Mm-hmm. Because I tell you what, even if he did do the things that you're saying he did, I, <laughs> just come on now. Oh, God's standard mm-hmm. is different than our standard. Yeah. And I almost did said something I shouldn't. So God's standard is different than our standard, mm-hmm. but as an outsider, and I will admit that I'm an outsider when it comes to Willow Creek. I have no firsthand knowledge of any of these people. 
but I have more concerns about how money is spent at a church like that yeah. as on an out as an outsider looking in than anything that I have heard that Bill Heibel has has done in terms of quote unquote hugs that lasted too long. I, again, in my job, if I brought up an accusation of a hug that lasted too long, I would be laughed out of the room and told to go find something better to focus on. Again, God's standard is different than our standard, but I, I, I and I may be, I, I know I'm, I'm speaking out of turn and I, I apologize for that, but well, and I shouldn't even follow it with a, I apologize for speaking out of turn. All sin is equal and we need to quit raising sexual sin to a level higher than some other things. And if we really want to evaluate ourselves at the church, I think we need to look at all of it. Yeah. So I think, I think a positive way to spin, not to spin it, but to say that statement is sexual sin is heightened. Mm -hmm. We need to raise other sin to that level because you don't, what we don't want to do is downplay the no trauma. And now I'm not saying you're doing that. I'm just saying if we can be as clear as day here, Mm -hmm. what we are saying is that yes, sexual sin is very important, but so is all the other bull crap. Mm -hmm. And all that other bull crap has been lessened and numbed to the point that we have people committing fraud and theft and tax evasion. We're like, yeah, it's bad, but it's not as bad. Yes, it is as bad as that. And and the people that are affected by the sexual sin deserve all of the, uh, you know, the mercy and grace and, you know, that. But we need to not lessen the other crap. Mm-hmm. All sin is equal, and that does not make the sexual stuff less bad. It makes the other stuff just as bad. Mm-hmm. Because... But when you start pulling favorites, man, and it's cultural, you know, in a hundred years, it might be the financial stuff that's bad. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I'm not going to be around, so it's not going <laughs> to bother me, but. Yes. Oh, well, man, we got through three whole verses. <laughs> so, yeah, what I thought was going to be a simple discussion and we'd move to the end. So, yeah, we will carry on in verse 16 next time, I guess. Yeah. Remember when we weren't going to go through Romans verse by verse? (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and even in that, just to kind of close here, you know, verse 16 says that is why it depends on faith. Again, there's this element of, of faith and just trusting in God and not ourselves in order that the promise may rest on grace, grace. uh, What? uh, Wow. Um, it, it is about grace because even as we look at Abraham and the lies that he told, a lying is another one. We seem to excuse what, you know, we, we color them white lies. It's a white lie. It's a minor lie. It's well, and gosh, if that's not a racial comment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, black is bad and white, white is, is good. good. So God, I never thought about that. Till just <laughs> Yeah. And so, Man. you know, and, and that's, and, and we haven't even gotten to what, Oh, no, we haven't even gotten to the main event. This is all, this is all preamble. (laughs) This is all preamble stuff. Mm -hmm. But yet when it comes to how God views Abraham. And this goes for David too. And the whole Bathsheba thing. I I would agree. King David. Yeah. Like there's there's some parallels here. Yeah, There's this element of. They are remembered as. um, 
I'm thinking of, is it Hebrews 13, the great cra- great cloud of witnesses? And it's the, either and, 12 or 13. Okay, I so, so in Hebrews, it talks about this great cloud of witness. And mm-hmm. there's this redemption that I personally believe is because of Jesus and his dying on the cross and how God views us and humanity of um, God is not this cosmic killjoy that is, has got a list of the good things that we've done and the bad things that we've done. And, he, and we all hope that when it's all said and done, our list of good things outweighs our list of bad things because it's not. It's, it's about faith. It's about grace. And um, I just think God views us. And again, I think this is one of those things that you understand better if you have the privilege of becoming a parent of a child in that you focus on the good things. You focus on the positives of who this person is and not so much the negatives. And when the negatives come into play, it's not a, um, it doesn't change your heart towards that person. It's just, I don't want those things to be in your life. I just don't want you to be that person. I want you to be good. And, and a healthy parent looks at their child and remembers all the good and all the pleasant and the, and the bad stuff is just, it just really doesn't even matter. And so, um, so yeah, we'll, we'll pick up with verse 16, I think next time and, and talk about that stuff and maybe even dig a little bit deeper into what Abraham, some of the things that Abraham did. Um, because uh, one of the things I do think that stands out to me in, in my, the parallel of being a parent is, is how he responded to God and chose God over his own offspring, uh, regardless of any kind of yeah. long-standing promise. I just can't imagine being a, a parent of a child and choosing God in the way that He did over His child. But no, that's again, a really good point. I had kind of forgotten time. about that. I was so focused on Hagar that I had forgotten about. <laughs> oh boy! Yep, next time is going to be good. Yeah. All right. Well. Thanks for hanging around for this uh, epic episode. Yes. Uh, we cracked the hour mark, guys and ladies. We did it. High fives all around. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Um, just again, real quick, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, Dave's at David J. Hogan on Twitter. I'm at Cam Brennan. Emails hello at Super Megacorp. Those links are all in the show notes, as well as links to the stuff that we talked about. And also a shout out to our Patreon supporters, Katie, Wilby. And Rachel, you guys continue to support us, and we think that's super cool. And hey, if you listen to the show, we also think that's very cool. Yes, thank uh, you. There's, there's, like I said, links to all that stuff in the show notes. If you're listening on your phone, you swipe up left, right. Uh, it's not Tinder. Don't worry. You're not going to like automatically <laughs> match with us. Just swipe around your phone and find the show notes. Click on the on the good links. Check it all out. And, uh, you know, shoot us, a, shoot us a line. Say hey. And uh, we'll be back in the future. Yeah, we'll see you then. Bye.